0: Today's show is sponsored by GoCD, a continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. GoCD helps your team release software more frequently, consistently, and reliably. Download and use GoCD for free. Visit gocd.org recode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today in the red chair is Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. He's also a social entrepreneur and previously worked in the Clinton and Obama White Houses, Jonathan, welcome to Recode Decode.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: No problem. Um, so if, but when we were talking in the beginning, I want to get your background because you're also a, a techie. You're yeah. also a techie, yeah. So, which is critically important, I think, in your job today. Mm-hmm. So why don't we start talking about that as how, your background a little bit and how you got to the Anti-Defamation League, and then tell us sort of what your charge is right now.
1: Sure. So uh, by way of background, I did my undergrad at Tufts, and I got my MBA at the Kellogg School of Management. And in between, I worked actually in government. I mm-hmm. worked at the Commerce Department in the early 90s, mm-hmm. and then I worked at the White House at the National Economic Council. And
0: why did you do that? Which is...
1: I joined the Clinton campaign when he was running for president. Mm-hmm. I was First a work... Clinton on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I was a work-study student at Tufts, mm-hmm. and he had this idea of young people serving in their community to pay their loans, and right. I thought that was a much better idea than mopping floors and bussing tables that I was doing. Sure. And so I moved down to Arkansas after I graduated and wow. worked for Governor Clinton.
0: Wow. Just did that. Just moved.
1: I believed. I wanted to fight the good fight.
0: Right. And so you did that and then it took you to
1: He won and I came up to D.C. and I did international economics for five years at the Commerce Department. It was at the time when NAFTA was getting passed. Mm -hmm. The gap became the WTO. Hong Kong transitioned over to China. Mm -hmm. APEC. So it was a time of international trade was really popping Great time to be working on those issues, right? And then we tried to understand where's the economy going. And I worked for a guy named Ira Magaziner at the mm-hmm. White House, yeah, and worked on your healthcare, exactly. Who then looked at trade issues, mm-hmm. and what I saw was tech was really growing. So right. we would go out to the Valley to try to understand these little new companies like right. eBay, right. Yahoo, Pierre had gone Netscape, to exactly. Yeah. And uh, long and short of it, is I saw those people were changing the world, and I wanted to be a part of that. But I didn't. So this
0: was, nine, what, you
1: know? this was 95, 90, 96. Sure,
0: you were there. When I was that, when I that's not many people are that early.
1: And I remember, I remember when, when Amazon went out, mm-hmm,
2: and Republic. I remember when
1: Netscape launched. I was on 95. the team at the commerce department that piloted Mosaic, the Mosaic browser in like right. 93, right. 94. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get into tech. Didn't know anything about it really, other than I So, was when reading. you
0: went out there, you saw, like, wow, this is cool. You yeah. understood, right?
1: I remember reading, like, Peter Schwartz's The Long Boom article in Wired mm-hmm. way back when. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought this was, was the future.
0: Critical. Yeah. and But here you are in Washington. <laughs> right? It's funny how I
1: came back. <laughs> so, I, I went and got an MBA. And then I went out and I wanted to go at a pre IPO company that would change the world. And I found this little business in Los Angeles called Realtor.com.
0: How did you settle on Realtor.com?
1: I was looking for a comp- for a business that was in A a really big market. Mm-hmm. Real estate's trillion dollars. Right. B had a great management team and they came from a bunch of really good companies. Right. C uh, had great venture because I figured that was a proxy mm-hmm. for knowing what company would succeed and John Doerr was on the board. Right. And uh, and uh, what's the one from Mary Meeker was also on the board. Oh, right. She was very involved with it. Mm-hmm. And then lastly it had competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about real estate. I didn't own a thing. But they had a deal with the National Association of Realtors. Right. And I knew coming from DC that alliance would probably be very powerful which of
0: course it's interesting you picked the, all the safe choices which is in tech like the, the company that's now big is Airbnb which had none of these advantages right. or, or one of the others which it's is really
1: a... internet internet 1.0 where yeah, you're taking is. linear business models and sort of just putting it on the web
0: right absolutely so you worked in Los Angeles at Realtor.com
1: did that and I was uh, they hired me as an assistant product manager mm-hmm. right the lowest you could be what does that mean what did you do I was responsible basically for display ads okay so I was responsible for figuring which out which was how
0: important it, on that particular show. huge and yeah. their
1: business model was aggregate all the mls listings on the web sure so you aggregate them you normalize them so a consumer could search for real estate from anywhere in the country big deal huge it wasn't possible before and they monetized it by selling ads to realtors Mm -hmm. and so that's what they did
0: home loans or whatever
1: yeah well i basically focused on realtors but then as it grew we did apartments we did you know Mm -hmm. the financing side etc right and it was great gig and i did it for a few years and the company went public and grew big and then had some issues and went set a little south yeah. I learned I was pretty good at shipping software. Mm-hmm. I learned I was pretty good at leading a team.
0: Were you technical at all? Did you have any technical? No,
1: but you learn. Right. You sit with engineers and you write like a technical specifications document mm-hmm. and you learn how to like, again, do software.
0: Right. And so what? why did you leave our internet
1: well, what cabal? Ha- well, what happened was, again, I learned I was pretty good at driving product and, mm-hmm. you know, but I was not – I missed public service. Mm-hmm. Now we're working for Wall Street shareholders who are anonymous mm-hmm. and I, I still wanted to change the world.
0: And you didn't want to go to another internet company. Google had just gotten started, then that might have been a good choice for you.
1: I remember when it got started. Yeah, 99. But what 99. happened was uh, my roommate from business school came to me with an idea for a business, mm-hmm. this thing called Ethos Water, that oh, became Ethos course. Water. Yeah. So basically he, he had this idea of could we take bottled water, which is a $15 billion category in the U.S., and use part of the profits to help children around the world get clean water. Mm-hmm. A billion people lack clean drinking water. And he would, came from McKinsey. He knew a lot about strategy, very smart, good person, mm-hmm. I was being very operational at the point. At that point, I was running all consumer products for Realtor. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I wanted to do something that was still operational, but more socially responsible. Right. So So water it is. I left. uh, I left uh, Realtor, and we started the business together. Mm -hmm. So we started Ethos Water in my house here in LA, or Mm -hmm. not? We're in DC, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And we bootstrapped it because no one wanted to. This is now 2002. Right. Bubble had burst. That's right. things are being resorted out and mm-hmm. no one wanted to invest in a bottled water company.
0: Right. Right.
1: So we bootstrapped it and we eventually a few of my friends gave us money. It was like I think they didn't want to see my wife and I get a divorce. <laughs> it was like therapy money. Yeah,
0: but Ethos got a lot of traction, correct? It certainly
1: did. Yeah. And eventually uh, we had this that young entrepreneur who started eBay. Mm-hmm. I met him at Pierre Ted. RDR? I met him I met Pierre at Ted 2003 or 2004. And he invested. He was our first big investor. Mm-hmm. And eventually got it to a really nice size. And then we sold it to Starbucks.
2: Right. That's and then right. I went
1: to work for Howard Schultz as the vice president for global consumer products.
0: So you'll be in the Schultz administration. We'll talk about that <laughs> a little bit. <laughs>
1: Isn't that funny? Um, <laughs> yeah. So I had to I kind love of, how he
0: pretends.
1: Exactly. Oh, no,
0: Kara. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Uh, more about that You're later. You're good at lying. Yeah. So I, I went to work for Howard, integrated the businesses, launched our product on their much larger retail platform. Sure. Howard asked me to serve on the board of the Starbucks Foundation because mm-hmm. now we had millions in free cash flow to distribute to projects all over the world. Mm-hmm. Great gig. Enjoyed it. My wife and I had two kids at the time were back in L.A. and I was in Seattle, which right, right, is not You moved easy. to Seattle. Oh, so well,
0: you, you – I was just in Seattle the other day.
1: It's a great town. Yeah,
0: it is. It's gotten even better.
1: It's um, really remarkable what's happened to it. So I went back to L.A. I got recruited to run a little magazine business called Good, Good. Magazine.
0: Another interesting entrepreneurial effort.
1: Exactly. Social responsible. That was, also, that was sort of going south. I mean, the print business is not a great business. It wasn't right. back then either. And I put it digital. I invested heavy in digital, invested heavy in you online. you publisher? Essentially CEO. Yeah, right. you're like publisher. And that was a great run. And then we had an idea that sort of came out of that, which is all these young people wanted to. They said, well, I read your magazine or I drink your water. Now mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. We had this idea of could we aggregate volunteer listings? Because mm-hmm. it turns out volunteer databases are a lot like MLSs, right. offline, mm-hmm. not standardized, fragmented. So I pitched an idea at the Googleplex. Mm-hmm. This was in late 2008, I believe. And I said, why don't we do for volunteer listings what Realtor did for real estate? And they got excited about it. Mm-hmm. And so it was a 20% project bunch of engineers helped me to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They invested in some big companies. P&G put money in, Gap put money in, and we built this thing called All for Good, Mm -hmm. which was the largest aggregation of volunteer listings uh, on the internet. And
0: there had been volunteer listing sites. Sure, there's good stuff.
1: Volunteer Match, uh, Idealist. There were a few others, but they were all, again – not standardized.
0: Right. They're not. So you have right. to go
1: to multiple places. What we did, right. we used data feeds. Right. And then we reached out and sort of scraped and brought all the listings in one place. Right. And that essentially became this really big technology architecture. Right. The other innovation that we had here at the time was we used APIs. Mm-hmm. So this was again late 08, early 09. Mm-hmm. Social was really beginning to take off. It was. And so the innovation was why would you go to volunteermatch.org? You could use APIs and integrate the listings right into your Facebook feed. Right. Right. Right, right. into whatever kind of site you were using.
0: Right, right, which was which you all did. And so you were working mm-hmm. on that. Which and it...
1: then eventually that grew to a nice size and then that got acquired by Points of Light, mm-hmm. you know, the group that uh, President Bush started mm-hmm. because they have thousands of volunteer centers across the country and they didn't have a technology architecture. Right. So now it's being used by all of them to manage their listings.
0: Manage listings.
1: So I had a few of those and they were so all- So you did
0: all these different entrepreneurial things. Mm-hmm. So here you are wandering around from one.
1: And then I got a call in 2011 summer from uh, the West Wing. Mm-hmm. So President Obama had created this office. The social... show
0: or the person? <laughs> <I'm kidding.
1: laughs> exactly. President Bartlett called Bartlett me. called.
0: I wish there was a President how, Bartlett. How we right?
1: miss. How
0: we miss President, President Bartlett. Bartlett. Let's uh. take a moment, especially CJ. Um, all right. <laughs> so you get a call and you were- it
1: created this Office of Social Innovation. Mm-hmm. It's really talented woman, Somal Shah, an economist who started it, had left. And he wanted this office, which was supposed to be focused on using innovation to accelerate economic recovery, boost job creation. Mm-hmm. He wanted someone who created jobs. Right. And contributed to economic recovery to run it. So- uh, it, look, I mean, I honestly, I wasn't an Obama person, but you get a call from the president, you take it, and mm-hmm. I believe in it's a call to service. Right. So we came out, uh, my wife, and my three kids, and we decided I would do this. Right. So I spent three and a half years working for President Obama, running that office.
0: So tell, how many people did you have in it? Because I'm assuming it's not staffed right now at all.
1: I think it has become the. <laughs> I think it's become the office of American innovation.
0: Oh, Chris Liddell.
1: That, no, that's Jared.
0: Okay, that's Jared. Okay. It's
1: the best kind of innovation. It's American <laughs> innovation. as opposed to all the other kinds. Uh, yeah, so I probably had half a dozen to 10 people. Uh-huh. You know, it would wax and wane with fellows and details. And
0: sure. Such. And so what, was your, what were your initiatives that you worked
1: on there? We did three big things. So number one, we tried to find new ways to put people to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was responsible for the national service agenda. Service as a strategy to put people back to work. Mm-hmm. So, like Americorps, Peace Corps, I was responsible for all those programs mm-hmm. and expanding them because the budget was know, frozen. Mm-hmm. So we created new programs like FEMA Corps to help with disaster relief, right? And Justice Corps to help with issues with uh, on the immigration front. Actually, mm-hmm. secondly, I did all the public-private partnerships for the president. Mm-hmm. So I worked on joining forces, helped set up my brother's keeper. All these different initiatives that try to find a way to bring philanthropy and business together to achieve right. the public public interest. Right. And then thirdly, I worked on the impact investing or social entrepreneurship agenda. Right. So I worked on boring things like tax policy, ERISA reform, trying to move big swaths of capital from offline, like passively managed by fund passively handled by fund managers in New York mm-hmm. into the economy. And so how do we get foundations have $800 billion? They in do. And they do.
0: They only hand hand. use VCs or whatever. Exactly.
1: They, so right. how do we make it easier for foundations to put money into jobs that we're creating, into companies creating jobs? Mm-hmm. How do we make it easier for pension funds to put their money into firms that are doing like renewables or social bonds? So things.
0: they can find them and invest them. And there's and funds like that on Wall Street. But more and
1: more. Yeah. More and more. And, so, and I, so like I helped launch the first social impact bonds in the government launch all the other kind of new programs to create novel financial instruments that use the capital markets more effectively.
0: So that we could invest in social good, presumably. That's right. So yeah. social good,
1: you got to measure. It's got to drive financial return. Mm-hmm. But you could also achieve kind of broader public benefit.
0: Which is attractive to millennials. That's like one of the many polls they do on millennials, the endless polls. Well, it, that is it, one thing that sticks out. It's up.
1: unbelievable. So, right. you know, millennials vote with their wallets. Mm-hmm. And now big firms like BlackRock and Goldman, Cap Group, and all these other large-scale investment houses are building funds and firms Specifically, to take advantage of where how millennials want to deploy their dollars,
0: right, and companies that reflect those values deeply, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting how Amazon's going around trying to figure out where they're going to be. I suspect they will not be somewhere that is less than tall. You know,
2: they're be figuring
1: it out. They historically haven't been great at it. But they hired a right. really effective uh, executive from BIA, from Business for Social Responsibility (BSR). Mm-hmm and they're not doing interesting stuff on the sustainability front.
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Things. But I'm thinking of where they're locating even their oh, facilities that they they have they're going to think about all these It'll issues. matter where how a state behaves, I think in a lot of ways which will be interesting.
1: It'll matter deeply. Deep, and then that's and where
0: like, economic growth will happen.
1: Economic growth will happen there and they'll be able to commit to things like public transportation and better infrastructure. Lots mm-hmm. of really interesting things.
0: Yeah. So, how did you get to the ADL? Because this is and it's, well, it's what a, a time to get there. It's before. a funny
1: story. So, I was giving a speech in uh, in Massachusetts mm-hmm. to a gr- room full of university chief investment officers, mm-hmm. which is sort of my crowd. How mm-hmm. do we get them again to deploy their dollars?
0: This is when you're in the Obama administration, uh-huh. huh?
1: and I got a voicemail from a headhunter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was a headhunter who said, "Hi, my name is so and so." Uh, I'm from this firm, the ADL. Mm-hmm. Their they're longtime uh, chief executive, Abe Foxman, is retiring. Mm-hmm. We got your name. W- would you be interested? Mm-hmm. Please give me a call back or if you would know someone, give us a call back. So I used to get a lot of calls from headhunters, like I think a lot of people in these public-facing jobs at the White House. And I didn't respond to most of them. But I responded – I called my wife actually when I got this call because – Two things. Number one, I didn't explain this, but when I was a junior at Tufts, or Mm -hmm. senior at Tufts, sorry, I interned at the ADL office in Boston. Mm -hmm. My grandfather was a Holocaust survivor from Germany. The year before, while studying abroad, I'd visited the town where he was from. No Jews there anymore. Mm -hmm. I came back to Tufts and said, I want to do something. I heard about this organization, the Anti-Defamation League, talked my way into an internship. And then 10 years later, when I moved out to L.A., uh, and didn't really know anyone. I learned that a woman I had worked for at that Boston office yeah. had moved to the Los Angeles ADL office. So I called her, and she's a Jewish mother, mm-hmm. basically. She's a Jewish mother. Mm-hmm. So you call a Jewish mother, you say I just moved to town.
2: Oh, she what, wants to
1: like yeah help you yeah help you. So she wants yeah. to feed you because right. she's sure she's certain I'm you know emaciated because I'm living alone, <laughs> and then she wants to set me up on a date. Uh-huh. And so she did that. She set me up on a blind date. This woman uh-huh. with uh, one of the people who worked at the ADL office and. Seventeen, you know, eighteen 17, 18 years later, my wife and I. Wow.
0: Returned. So, you, so wow. my wife worked there you for got seven your, years. So you got, you got your wife through the ADL. Mm-hmm. You did an internship and now your job. Mm-hmm.
1: So I got that call and I called my wife. I'm like, can you believe this? Mm-hmm. Abe Foxman's retiring. They called me. Mm-hmm. My wife said, oh, that'd be a great job. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I think that would be a terrible job. Right. You have to fight Nazis mm-hmm. and anti-Semites and racists. Right. Number 2, I told her, I said we're going home to LA. Right. The plan was to do this and then go back to California. Right. So what do I this it be waste my time and thirdly I also thought, "Kara, I'm not qualified for the job." Right. Look, I've never I'm not a lawyer, I'm an MBA. Right, which
0: is a critical part of ADIO.
1: Crucial. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about the civil rights agenda. Mm-hmm. I've never run a nonprofit organization. I've never worked in the Jewish community. Like I'm certainly You're not. You're perfect. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So I thought I, I she certainly is not really interested in me, right? But you know what I thought? What I thought was, you know what? I'll go talk to this woman because I want the job because I don't, and I'm not mm-hmm. even qualified. But the next CEO of ADL, because I knew how important the organization was, should be thinking about search and social and tech and innovation, and Absolutely. Income, because that's what the Nazis where the world was going. Yeah. That's right. So uh, I took the interview on a lark, thinking that well, I can help shape the search, and that'll be my contribution. And one thing led do another, and I'm here. But it's interesting because the ADL is such a storied organization. It feels Mm -hmm. like even if this isn't where I thought I would be, it's a privilege to be here every day. And Mm -hmm. the issues matter more now. Yeah.
0: You sort of hit the timing. Your timing is – perfection in a a horrible way. So you took this job and you explain what the ADL does for those who don't know. There's a number of organizations like it but it's a a unique and important organization.
1: So the ADL was founded in 1913 around the time that Leo Frank was lynched outside of Atlanta. It's a famous story. Jewish man falsely accused of a crime, found guilty, sentenced to death. Uh, The uh, the governor commutes his sentence because it clearly was a sham trial to life imprisonment the mob is so enraged they hang him from a tree. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ADLs founded at that time when anti-Semitism is prevalent along with racism, et cetera. And the founders create this organization and in their own words, they write a mission statement that the organization will, quote, work to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all, end mm-hmm. quote. So that's a very interesting mission statement because 100 years ago, the Jews – again, not only was there pervasive anti-Semitism – Quotas kept them out of many universities. Customs kept them out of many professions. Right.
0: They had a hideaway.
1: Covenants didn't let them live in many places. So they didn't really have any of the political power, economic resources the community has today. Mm-hmm. They did not really have a leg to stand on. So it was a bold proposition that they would be out for themselves but also justice fair treatment to all. Like again, based on – were an, on, their future was very uncertain. They were very weak. Mm-hmm. But they had this audacious – Frankly, it's a very Jewish idea. We'll mm-hmm. fight for ourselves, but also fight for others. Right. So over the next 100 years, they tore down a lot of those quotas, they exposed a lot of those practices. They made America a better place for the Jewish community. And in the early 50s, like in 52, they filed an amicus brief in Brownby Board of Education, mm-hmm. which was a bold, controversial thing to do. And they literally put people on those buses, the Freedom Rider buses, and they marched with Dr. King. And they stood up for the LGBTQ community in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I've heard these stories when people were afraid that, that gay men, you could catch AIDS from someone sneezing right. on you. ADL stood up for them. Mm-hmm. And they stood up for immigrants in the 50s. I could go on and on. They have yeah. a remarkable history. Today, basically, the work continues to be you know inspired by that mission, fighting for the Jewish community and for others. And basically, ADL does three things, advocacy, education, and law enforcement. Advocacy is working to change laws through the courts or through Congress, lobbying, filing amicus briefs, litigating to a degree.
0: So there's strategic issues around that.
1: Exactly. Around protecting minorities, preserving the First Amendment. Number two, education. Long ago, they realized you can't litigate or lobby your way out of hate. You have to Mm -hmm. change hearts and minds. Today, the ADL is one of the largest providers in the United States of anti-bias, anti-bullying, anti-hate content in schools. Our materials reach more than a million and a half children every year. We literally cannot keep up with the demand. And number three, we work with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. We both help them investigate hate crimes,
0: right, and focus on who needs to be focused on. Focus.
1: We have a whole research apparatus. Our center mm-hmm. on extremism focuses on researching the bad guys, and we train police on how to deal with hate and how to deal with extremism. We train fifteen thousand officers every year, more than any other NGO in the country. The FBI has made our training mandatory. Uh, the nypd has made our training mandatory so basically advocacy education and law enforcement those are the three things we do and we have a network of 26 offices across the country field offices that are like our channel that sort of go to market and implement those programs locally in seattle or, you and know,
0: presumably Phoenix. you work with others like the Southern Poverty Law Center and others to Absolutely. try to, to we, chronicle what's going on. We
1: work with the SPLC, mm-hmm. for example, and the U.S. Holocaust Museum on some of that training for law enforcement and researching the bad guys. Mm-hmm. I was with Anthony Romero last week in the Bay Area. We work with ACLU a lot mm-hmm. on First Amendment cases. Uh, on the education front, we're constantly partnering with groups like Facing History and working on the ground in school districts.
0: All right. We're going to talk about what that means now then. Mm-hmm. Here we are. You got here. It's a really bad time now all of a sudden. And so we're going to talk about that and more including the impact of tech on all these problematic issues for the American public and the political scene right now which yep. is is making it even worse. We're here with Jonathan Greenblatt. He is the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League here in DC. Is that that's the headquarters there, correct?
1: No, we're headquartered in Manhattan. Manhattan. But we have a big office here in DC.
2: Excellent.
0: We're here with Jonathan Greenblatt. He's the head of the Anti-Defamation League. It is a organization that fights for the rights of those who do not have them. Today's show is sponsored by GoCD, an open-source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD, your team can release software more frequently, consistently, and reliably. Enjoy advanced traceability by visualizing your complex workflows from end to end. GoCD is open-source and free to use. Professional support and enterprise add-ons are available from ThoughtWorks. For out-of-the-box continuous delivery, visit gocd.org/recode. This show is brought to you by Qualcomm, the company that invented the fundamental technology in everything you love about your phone. From download speeds to stunning photos to GPS, none of it would work the way you count on without Qualcomm engineers getting there first. And now the company that changed everything with the smartphone is about to change everything else. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone, no matter what brand of phone it is. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash we invent. We're here with Jonathan Greenblatt. He is the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. We're talking about his background and how he got to this organization, and it's very entrepreneurial, and it's very tech-oriented, which is interesting because it's a critical skill, right, going forward. Mm-hmm. Before we get to that, I want to talk about sort of the state of play right now in the Trump administration. Everything seems jacked up in the most dis- horrible way at this point, um, and I want you to talk about why that is or, or what's happening. What, what has happened in this country where it just seems like you have a lot to do?
1: Well, I'll tell you. I mean – as a 501c3, we're non-political. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's anything, anything partisan about fighting prejudice. And right. what we saw in the 2016 campaign was we saw one particular candidate really stoke up.
0: Uh, around immigrants.
1: Around around Muslims, Mexicans, and immigrants of all variety. Um, issues, if you will, of tolerance and extremism. Mm-hmm. And we saw a mainstreaming along of sort of white nationalists right. into the room in a way we had not seen since George Wallace in the 60s. Right, Of course, George Wallace didn't win the White House,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and indeed, after the election day in the last two months of uh, 2016, we saw a massive spike in hate crimes mm-hmm. and bias incidents directed at Jews, again Muslims, Mexicans, and immigrants in general, I and mean, was really very alarming. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the data. Again, there's nothing political in pointing out the fact that in the that that spike happened, and it continued in the first half of this year. We saw in the first half of 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, a seventy-six percent increase in bias incidents against Jews compared to the first half of last year. Mm-hmm. Nearly a thousand incidents of harassment, vandalism, and violence. Right, just against Jews. Mm-hmm. When you add in the spike we've seen against Muslims and Mexicans, it's really extremely alarming. So when we, when we talk about well, why are things jacked up, it is it is difficult to explain why the president would choose to focus his Twitter feed more on NFL players demonstrating their first amendment rights versus white supremacists mm-hmm. who literally have murdered several people over the course of this year an indian immigrant two bi- an indian immigrant in Kansas City two innocent bystanders in Portland Oregon an african american ROTC student right here in the DC area mm-hmm. it's 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 hard to understand how you can equivocate Right. On the unequivocal.
0: All right. So let's talk about why that has happened. The, the, obviously, it's, it's, the, it's the permission, I guess, to do that. Is that is – that, or is it social media or what's the – let's talk about sort of the, the – you know, you don't want to blame everything on Twitter, but in a lot of ways, it's created an atmosphere of
1: hatred, really. Well, let's be honest. I think first and foremost, you know, l- leaders lead. Right. And what gets said at the top trickles down. So I think if we try to understand the causality – Being ambiguous about calling out what seems to me pretty unambiguous, Mm -hmm. that creates the conditions in which extremism can really – they can feel emboldened. Now, social media, Twitter in particular, helps to accelerate and amplify that. And so you see it as a bit of an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And whether we want to talk about trolls, we want to talk about sort of bots and cyborgs or whatever the causality there, social media has become really this – echo chamber where the things we hear from top really reverberate and they resonate with parts of the, of the community that again, white supremacists, it isn't that they haven't been around. They've always been around. Mm -hmm. They've always been bigots, but they've had to literally convene in Mm cornfields in the dead of night, like in rural Iowa today, they're out in the open hiding behind the anonymity of a Reddit or a 4chan and then using the social media ecosystem to push their memes out into Twitter, and to the public.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So talk about how they do this, because it's something, and then I want to talk about how to fight that. How do you fight that? Or if it's possible to even fight it, It, they finally get a voice is what you're talking about. The concept of the the internet was started with the idea that everybody gets a voice now. Isn't this great? Isn't this great for democracy? Isn't this great for all people? Because there's been gatekeepers, you know, you know, totally. So talk about their success in using these and what that means.
1: And I think one of the things that's happened is these platforms like Facebook, Mm -hmm. like Twitter, And and many others have emerged without the kind of filters and the sort of systems, the checks and the systems that you have in in broader parts of media, like newspapers, which we were talking about before we started Mm -hmm. taping, or broadcast. The fact of the matter is journalism as an industry has an ethos, Mm -hmm. and people go to school for it, and they get trained in it. There is no ethos on social media, right? Right. And that creates the conditions in which you can get your message out very directly to people, and it plays into... Again, we all have these cell phones in our hands, Mm -hmm. which connect us directly into like the matrix. Mm -hmm. So there's no more – there's no more breaks. There's no more filters. That's a big part of the problem. And they've learned. They've learned how to exploit that effectively. So we watched this during the 2016 campaign. We watched where – when I say we watched it, our center on extremism – tracks the right-wing extremists, the left-wing radicals. We track all of them. Mm-hmm. And we could see things start in an 8chan or 4chan or Reddit where a lot of these memes actually get developed. And we watch them send them out to particular voices on Twitter or DM them or send them privately. And then those voices consistently would start to propagate this stuff. And then people like the Trump campaign would pick it up and retweet it. So you could see a, a, a there was a through line between certain white supremacist and extremist accounts, and how things ended up in the public domain. Right. It, it, There's nothing. There's nothing accidental about Kara. It, it was mm-hmm. nothing. It was very intentional. Mm-hmm. It was very deliberate. Right. And so part of the challenge becomes when again Twitter and Facebook, let's be frank, they themselves can't keep up with the technology. Right. So one of the things we did last year with Google was we exposed the parentheses meme. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that?
0: Yes. Explain it for me.
1: So basically, white supremacists wanted to identify Jews. I think the Jews are behind all the evils of the world. So they created this meme where they would put parentheses around the names of Jews to demonstrate how we, quote-unquote, echo through history. Mm -hmm. By the way, they would put it on Jews or people who they thought were Jewish. And they built kind of a plug-in for for the Chrome browser Mm -hmm. so that you could – I guess it worked on Firefox too – so you could pull up a website. And if you had the plug-in – it would the, the the plugin would search for names on a web page, and if Jewish names showed up that were from a database or names that had previously identified and entered,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it would put the parentheses around it for you, so you could easily identify the Jews in mm-hmm. a news story, for example. Right. So it would say, "By Jake Tapper," parentheses around it. By Walt Mossberg, parentheses mm-hmm. around it. So we identified that and we went to Google and we actually also went to Apple and got them to take it out of their stores, mm-hmm. the plug-in, basically. Right. But my, I say this because these things get created and Google and Facebook and Twitter, they themselves can't keep up with it. They just put it up. I mean, if you can imagine, Facebook has a billion, I think it's one point yep. seven. It's close to over billion. two. It's over 2 billion yep. members. So the last data I heard was more than 4.5 billion messages across the platform every day. Mm-hmm. And if you include WhatsApp, I mean right. the numbers are astounding. Right. There is no way on God's green earth, no matter how many how many customer service reps Mark Zuckerberg hires, he could ever keep up with the torrent of information
0: Th- that's being perpetrated around, especially Correct. the negative information. Okay, I still think it's their fault. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, I think, but it is though because right. like, because I, I think one of the things they put out is one they built systems where they didn't anticipate this. One. That's right. And two, they. Act like it's a benign platform. I've been saying this a lot. They act like, oh, it's a benign. It's it's only for good, and they don't. I'll, I'll never forget the thing with some Facebook executives talking about Facebook Live, and I said, when's the first hate crime on it? And they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, you haven't thought about this? Like, maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. Why haven't you done
1: enough? You know what I mean? They well, just... you, and, you and I both know that the Valley – I've spent a lot of time in the Valley. So right. have you. There's a libertarian ethos there. Yeah. Right? A libertarian ethos. Which it's is a, like
0: It's a faux libertarian. It's not a really good one. But, well, it, yeah.
1: it, it may be. Like yeah. a, teal, a tealian libertarian a tealian. Okay, whatever. ethos, right? Where it's like anything goes and it'll be good and just get mm-hmm. the to keep government away and we'll right. innovate our way right. to utopia. Mm-hmm. And we both know that human nature doesn't exactly work – necessarily work that way. Sure. And we shouldn't be surprised that extremists exploit new media. The Nazis did it mm-hmm. when uh, – you know um, with triumph of the will and using mm-hmm. film as ways to propagandize. The Soviets did it with Pravda and using print media to kind of influence people. So we shouldn't be surprised that extremists today mm-hmm. try to terrorize, you know, and spread their own form of tyranny, to use that, to use that term again, through new media. Now, with that said, I we think— We shouldn't be
0: surprised, but they shouldn't be either. They,
1: that's the point. So yeah. the point is, is that, look, for example, white supremacists could, if they chose to, decide to get a, ask for a room in the Grand Hyatt in downtown D.C. But guess what? The manager of the Grand Hyatt's is going to say, you know, I don't think it's a great idea for me to rent a space to you because mm-hmm. I don't think it will send the right message to the rest of my patrons mm-hmm. by people with swastika armbands march goose stepping through mm-hmm. the lobby. Right. So by the same token, it's fair to say that Facebook and Twitter and Google could do a better job of ensuring that they preserve freedom of speech, but they also protect the safety of all their users.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They are trying to make inroads now. They realize they have a problem. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. Last year with Twitter, I heard – From people you know, journalists, Mm -hmm. broadcast in print, who would interview me and then afterwards they would say, I'm worried about the anti-Semitic abuse being launched at me. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean? So we organized a task force to look at this last year. Mm -hmm. And we pulled some sample Twitter data. We found millions and millions and millions of anti-Semitic messages, tens of thousands of messages directed specifically at Jewish journalists. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when this story broke, Twitter initially wasn't willing to listen to us. Right. But – you know, if you remember how their M&A talks got derailed last year when yes. Disney pulled back and Salesforce derailed pulled back. Derailed is a kind way of putting it. Maybe.
0: Nobody wanted to buy them.
1: And part of the reason they said was concerned about the liability on the platform.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think in part that was because of the report that we released.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And now, and so here's what happened there. Twitter realized this is no longer a stakeholder issue. Mm-hmm. It's actually a shareholder issue. Right. And this is what my own experience Explain in business is. Explain the
0: difference between that.
1: A stakeholder issue is when a small group of activists mm-hmm. expresses a concern and it's a marginal issue. And you deal with it out of the CSR office. It's mm-hmm. kind of a nice to have. A shareholder issue is when you deal with it out of the investor relations office and it's, a, it's an absolute must. Right. Because if your share price is going down... That suddenly gets the board's attention and gets your shareholders' attention in a different way. So
0: how do you – when you go out there, since you do speak their language, you've been working with them, get their attention on this? Because I think this is a really critical issue is that they're very slow to want to do anything about this. What is the reason for it from your perspective? Because they see themselves as, again, benign and good people, which they are. for Not benign but good for sure. I mean I don't think – they're sitting there thinking, oh, I'll just let anything goes on my platform. They're definitely they're worried and concerned about it.
1: Yeah, I think – look, at an individual level, I've been blessed to meet lots of executives and they're absolutely good people. Mm-hmm. I think what happens is that when you get – when these things grow at a degree of scale, the individual's kind of desires gets overtaken by the Borg, you mm-hmm. know? And so what I think is that these companies now realize they've sort of crossed a Rubicon. Right. They realize their size and their penetration in all segments of society now has the attention not only of journalists. Mm-hmm. And is it Farhad who's been writing about – what do you mm-hmm. call it? The Frightful Five or something mm-hmm. like that. He's used that phrase for a while.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now regulators are looking at it. Absolutely. Right. Now pol- aspiring politicians are looking Why at not? it. Why not? Right. So suddenly it's got – it reminds me of the 90s when they went after Microsoft,
0: mm-hmm. right? Except in that case, it was a, over Monopolis. This is really tarnishing they, society. In totally a way. right. Yeah. But they
1: just at – some, at some point, it reaches a critical mass in the Absolutely. size that you get attention. 100%. And I think, by the way, that Microsoft – it's almost like a parable what happened to them. And I think everyone in the Valley gets mm-hmm. scared. is why Google and, and uh, Facebook have such huge offices out here. Right. Right. Um, but I think they suddenly are. I've tuned into the fact they can no longer ignore this problem. Mm-hmm. I believe they ignored it before because of the libertarian ethos and because they all want user growth. Right. Right. User one of the core the metrics. One.
0: It goes against every user growth. Exactly. Whenever. So I talked about this about Twitter is that if they turn off the bullying perfectly, their user growth drops. But it's already dropping. I was. It doesn't because they create a an atmosphere that's so vile and and and. Um, poisonous that it's user growth dies anyway so it's really kind of fascinating you're
1: probably right but if you think about that investor relations deck mm-hmm. you know every quarter you want to have user growth going in the right, right direction so anything that might put the brakes on that concerns right. an, an, an analyst mm-hmm. will raise his hand or her hand and say right. whoa what's going on here right so flash forward to today we've now found them much more willing to work with us mm-hmm. you know actually we mentioned him already twice today Pierre Midyar. Mm-hmm. that I was at South by that this past year sure and announced that we're opening a new center on technology and society in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. Actually, we're rolling it out next month in November mm-hmm. in Palo Alto. Pierre gave us the seed capital to fund this thing. Right. An Iranian-American, never involved with ADL, but he cares deeply about free speech. Right. He's worried about fake news. He's worried about That's right. he kind is. of the cyber hate. So he it, gave us the seed capital. And the companies realized they've got to figure out ways to convene and work together. Mm-hmm. I would liken it to sort of child pornography. Or mm-hmm. even copyright infringement, exactly. where they've developed shared strategies,
0: or spam. They were fast on that. Or right? spam. They're or fast spam. on that kind. Of. They're very fast on child pornography. So, what is your office going to do out there? What is your goal?
1: In our first two years of working, when I came on board two years ago, I immediately cranked this up. Mm-hmm. We created a cyber hate working group. Many of the big companies get work with us on it, and we work on think we've worked on things like terms of use mm-hmm. and how to develop or, t- or terms of use or terms of service that will keep out. You know, you have to allow for some degree of hate speech. Mm-hmm. Hate speech is free speech. Like it or not, you can say mean things. But hateful speech is different than harmful speech, mm-hmm. right? It's one thing to say, I don't like Jews. and does say, I want to kill them all. Mm-hmm. And it can be a bit of a gray line, I'll acknowledge. Sure. But, you know, the First Amendment isn't supposed to allow for harmful speech. Right. Or the, violent
0: speech. Or violent
1: true. speech, yeah. yeah. yeah so-, so with that said, just last week we announced this and we were creating a – in fact, I'll tell you a story – You saw this uh, a few weeks ago. There were accounts about how folks were using the ad platforms. I think ProPublica broke this, Mm -hmm. the ad platforms to target Jews or target blacks. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. So that broke on Thursday. On Friday, the head of uh, Facebook's policy group was in my office in New York and said, how do we work together on this? We know we have a problem. What do we do? Last week, we announced a new initiative under the rubric of this new center. We're calling it the problem-solving lab. Mm -hmm. Here's why it's important. It's not lawyers. It's engineers. It's engineers. Mm -hmm. It's not policy people. It's product people. Mm -hmm. So I think the way that we will really start to solve this problem is figuring out, again, shared strategies, technical approaches. And we've got Microsoft, Google, Twitter, and Facebook all committing to participate in this Mm -hmm. with ENG product people because you've got to build these solutions. You're not, again, I think, going to lobby your way. Of the problem.
0: I get that. But wh- again, I want to get to – you're being nice because I, I like that you're working with them. Yeah. But why didn't they – again, Libertarian doesn't cover it for me. It's it's something else that's at work within the group, um, either that they see themselves as not impactful. Um, I get exhausted mm-hmm. by Google's actions saying we're such a small company. You know what I mean? I like,
2: know.
1: I know. You know what
0: I mean? Like I'm like, are you kidding? You have – like or, or Facebook, news distribution. Everybody gets their news from Facebook or and or Twitter and yeah. or – Their impact, they don't seem to want to acknowledge their impact.
1: A libertarian ethos, Mm -hmm. layered on top top of an evolving business model. Layered on top of, let's be honest, naivete. Mm -hmm. And whether that's an intentional naivete, like I'm going to cover my eyes, Mm -hmm. or it's an unintentional naivete, they don't realize. But I think this thing has grown to a scale. It's a bit like a Frankenstein's monster. Right. They don't even realize what they've created. And it dawns on them when they realize – when when the president of the company, a Jewish woman mm-hmm. who publicly mourned the loss of her husband just a year or two ago, suddenly sees literally like anti-Semites using her platform to find other like-minded people who want to kill Jews. Mm-hmm. Like I think that was a wake-up call for Sheryl Sandberg. Mm-hmm. I think it was a wake-up call for Mark Zuckerberg who a week before – Mm-hmm. Or maybe two weeks before, talked about Rosh Hashanah mm-hmm. in a personal post on Facebook, which he doesn't do very often. Right. And right. again, suddenly their platform has been hijacked by haters. Right. Um, so I think they realize that a libertarian ethos and an uncertain business model are no longer excuses when extremists are running amok. Right. So we've been working with Google mm-hmm. through their Jigsaw division on their initiative called Perspective. Have you heard about this? Mm-hmm. Right, So we've got the best data sets out there on anti-Semitism and bigotry because we've been tracking this stuff literally for a hundred years. So I think AI and machine learning are important parts of how we tackle this this problem. And I'll give you an example. So I often get – if you look at my Twitter feed, it's it's crazy, right? I've got horrible like white supremacists tweeting at me and anti-Israel people tweeting at me and all kinds of stuff. It's really great. Mm -hmm. So people will tweet a picture. So if I'm walking into Best Buy on a Sunday afternoon – and i get a tweeted a picture of me of an oven that might be okay because maybe there's a sale on whirlpool ovens and mm-hmm. you know in uh, aisle 12 or whatever but when i'm sitting here in your studio and i get tweeted a picture of two ovens double ovens and it says jewish bunk beds on it mm-hmm. that's probably not such a nice no, to send to me. no. I so wouldn't it,
0: even look at my Twitter, for you? Yeah,
1: I don't look at it very often yeah. for yeah. this reason. But if, so, if you used AI and you saw, aha, the person tweeting at Jay Greenblatt, his his name or whatever, its name is at White Genocide. Mm-hmm. Their Twitter bio says, you know, I want to kill all the all the Jews, mm-hmm. and uh, you see that they've been flagged for messages before, and you see that they have none of the friends in common with me or none of the followers with me. There are lots of triggers mm-hmm. that, again, if we were using AI to effectively in nanoseconds, milliseconds, monitor these kinds of things. Right. You could instantly, if not solve the problem, you could mitigate it dramatically. Right. Right. All
0: right, we're going to talk about solutions and what to do and some of the tactics that these extremist groups use with Jonathan Greenblatt. He's the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. And uh, increasingly, he's going to have to focus on the tech solutions yeah. to these problems. Yeah.
1: What does machine learning have to do with autonomous driving? How do you build a powerful open source community? Will the cloud really consume the world? Tune in to Stack That, a new podcast from Hewlett Packard Enterprise, to dive into the world of emerging trends and learn how you can leverage this tech for the benefit of your business. Each week, our hosts Byron Reese of GigaOM and Florian Leibert of Mesosphere will tackle a new topic with the help of guests from Airbnb, Google, Confluent, and other industry experts. Check out Stack That on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and News.hbe.com. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the latest episodes.
0: We're here with Jonathan Greenblatt. He is the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. It's been a fascinating discussion about how tech companies are dealing with the onslaught of, of extremism, um, that extremists using online tools mm-hmm. quite effectively and mm-hmm. for organization, for spreading of hatred, the spreading of their ethos. Mm-hmm. T- to talk a few things that they do. Like you talked about the parentheses, but talk about some of the more egregious things recently.
1: Sure. Well, uh, well, one of the things we've seen, we've seen different things. So number one, the, on Twitter, mm-hmm. we've seen extremists specifically pursue Journalists. Mm-hmm. So it's a technique. They try to shut yeah. people down. They try to push people to self-censor themselves. And they do it by doxing journalists.
0: Mm-hmm. Which, which is well-known.
1: Which is well-known. And so they'll put up that information. So suddenly, like – You know, if you're the head of the ADL, you expect to get harassed on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But when you're a freelance journalist writing for GQ, you Mm -hmm. don't expect that your personal cell phone is going to start to ring with horrible messages or you receive snail mail to your home Mm -hmm. saying, we know where you live, which is the kind of thing that have happened repeatedly to journalists. So one of the Mm -hmm. techniques is to target journalists, and they did this during the campaign after they would write things about the Trump campaign, Mm -hmm. and use doxing and sort of cyber bullying to try to shut them down. Right. The second thing that we've seen them do is really when someone does something questionable, just jam them with all kinds of messages. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the term for this is, but literally people see their Twitter feeds flooded with hateful messages and they're using cyborgs Mm -hmm. and bots bots to do that. Like no person can – the the level of incoming I'm talking about is is absolutely paralyzing. Mm -hmm.
0: And in terms of communicating with each other, what is the what are the so, preferred areas? It's Reddit, obviously.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of Reddit and 4chan and 8chan where they can be a little bit more hidden than they can on services like uh, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. We've also seen them move to services like Telegram mm-hmm. and others that are uh, – WhatsApp that are harder to track, that are more point-to-point right. versus many-to-many. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, there was a piece in Wired last month that started to talk about this new kind of alt-right internet that they're attempting to create, mm-hmm. right, to recreate many of these services for their own community.
0: So they can talk. But I think one of they the more effective things is they're not other. talking to each other. They talk to a lot of people. Well, that's, that's their
1: idea. So, and then, so you know what's interesting about all of this? Mm-hmm. So what they've really tried to do in this, i got to be honest, the campaign and then this this presidency has given them a pathway forward to normalize. And this is what I think we need to be most worried about. I agree yeah it's not the it's not the Twitter handle at white genocide as mm-hmm. disgusting and revolting as that might be. It's Richard Spencer
0: mm-hmm.
1: who says verified a, on Twitter verified on Twitter. I'm a free speech advocate, mm-hmm. so you should let me speak at your university or you should welcome me at your event and then or people like Alex Jones, mm-hmm. who literally are fellow travelers with these people because they recycle their their ridiculous conspiracy theories right. And then suddenly, you know, the mm-hmm. Megyn Kellys of the world interview them and give them an imprimatur mm-hmm. of respectability.
0: There's an argument to me that you should hear what they're saying, that you should hear the voices because media tends to, to make it more benign than it should be. That we should, People should actually listen to what their actual words are.
1: I think that's right. I think that was one of the, I would really give props to the folks at Vice mm-hmm. who were in Charlottesville yeah. in August. Yeah. Because what they didn't do is glamorize these people. Right. They just put the cameras on them and let you hear them right. say, Jews will not replace us. Right. They put the cameras on them and let them say all these just absolutely revolting right. things.
0: Is that normalizing or let's just show you what they're like?
1: Well, that so, so this is, it's interesting. There's a fine line mm-hmm. between normalizing or glamorizing these people. Right. When you put Richard Spencer on, without any context, right. you just interview him with his sort of short haircut wearing like a, a suit and a polo shirt, you, you sort of you, you almost make him seem like he's a respectable member of the mm-hmm. intelligentsia. When you layer in though some B roll of him at doing the Heil Hitler salute mm-hmm. and saying the kind of outlandish things he says about Jews and African Americans and you mm-hmm. know Mexican Americans, that's when you expose his intolerance for what it is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't look we're free speech we're free speech advocates at the ADL. We believe you've got to expose this stuff in order to understand it. You've got to hear them right. in order to grasp the threat that they represent. Mm-hmm. But it needs to be done in a clinical kind of way, not in a way that unintentionally or, by the way, intentionally elevates these people. Right,
0: right, exactly. So, so and, it's a difficult th- thing. It because... is
1: hard because we're also in a media environment where we're always looking for equivalence. Mm-hmm. Like I call it the crossfire effect, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you have someone from the right, you have to have someone from the left. Right. Look, there's no right and left you know, around bigotry. No. And yet, we need to be able to acknowledge that someone like... Oh, well, rich- is
0: Cable News built on that? I mean, really, honestly. I won't go on any of those panels on Cable News refuse. I'm like, I, you don't know what you're... I'm not going to have someone who's ignorant. Exactly. Be on the other side of something.
1: Exactly, because what that essentially does is you, you anoint them if right. so they were a credible... Voice, yeah. And again, it's not that we shouldn't – look, you need to understand that people think there's a flat earth. Mm-hmm. Usually people think there are aliens in Area 51.
0: Mm-hmm. They're but, not? OK.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but but we should accord those kind of conspiratorialists right. to the same place we should accord people. Like
0: right. This, so Twitter this week got into a lot of trouble around Rose McGowan taking her off, talking about free speech. You know, she did put up a, a phone number, but other people have, including Donald Trump, put up phone numbers too. And they didn't get kicked off. You can see this happening over – you can talk about over- this particular. Never. But over and over again, and now Jack has tweeted he's going to put up new rules and more new rules and rules of rules, rules, and it seems to utterly either just a lot of talking or ineffective, either of which is pointless in some of the ways.
1: Well, look, I think you know we participate on Twitter's Trust and Safety Council, mm-hmm. and I think we may be the only civil rights group to do that. Mm-hmm. And they have definitely made Twitter specifically have made progress in the past year. They've introduced some new things, some new tweaks to the product and the platform. To again reduce the risk of some of this stuff blowing up in the way that it was doing a year ago. Mm-hmm. But the Rose McGowan thing and the Me Too campaign just point out how complicated this is. Right. And I would say these, you know, so think about the newspaper industry for a minute mm-hmm. or broadcast and media more, or news media more generally. Decades ago, generations ago, they introduced ombudsmen. Right. Right? Much like federal agencies have inspector generals to provide some oversight and acknowledge with a little bit of humility that we need someone as a voice for the people or a voice right. for the public, right. it's it would seem like we're in a moment today where these platforms and these large companies need ombudsmen as well right. who can help to provide oversight and be a bit of a check and balance on the – kind of biz dev groups, if you will, the investor relations groups who say, no, 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 just grow, just grow, just grow. Mm -hmm. Responsible growth seems to me like a more sustainable strategy.
0: Which they don't want to do. All right, I want to finish up talking about some of the things that you think you need to do as a group to get better at uh, and what are the things you're most worried about? And I want to focus on tech because a lot of this stuff will proliferate via tech. Is it VR? Is it what kind of things are a, a machine learning or what are the things that you need to fight extremism? And to not you're never going to stamp it out, I suspect. But you what are you things that are critical for organizations like yours? And then what are the things you're worried about?
1: Well, I mean, so if you think about the advocacy, education, law enforcement, number one on the advocacy front, I'm definitely worried about the convergence of in a digital environment, a traditional civil rights agenda. Mm-hmm. So what do we do when sort of big data Gerrymans people, if you will, by class or by race or right. by religion, even not just unintentionally, invisibly, because mm-hmm. things are being algorithmically served to us that we don't even know.
0: Oh yeah, and your race and what you look like, all the eye stuff, all the all the. The other day, someone sent me something about an app that could tell if you're gay, and it's like
1: I heard about this. I, I heard about this. Or like,
0: anything they could. Well, they could obviously do color. They could do. They could do racial facial characteristics. So you like.
1: could easily, in a minority report sort of way, mm-hmm. serve up ads to people unbeknownst to them, they're not seeing what other people are seeing. Right. And again, digitally gerrymand folks in ways that constrain them from choices they don't even know about. Right. So I worry a lot about that on the advocacy front. I also... Were were
0: you worried about Apple's facial recognition software that's going into the phones?
1: We're watching it closely. Again, I think we have to be vigilant about all of this. If we're not vigilant about the rights that we have and the privilege we enjoy, we shouldn't expect to keep them. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to look at all of these things very carefully, very cautiously. You know, Tim Cook... You stepped up after Shardsville gave us a big seven-figure gift and supported ADL for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet again, Apple has an awful lot of control and an awful lot of like inf- yep. encouragement. Or all it's that. a
0: big issue for him. I like think
1: ones. about you know we have a Google Home in our we, we I have a Google Home really. Mm-hmm. Mm. But the privacy considerations with things like that—how is it monitoring what we're saying? Is it really? Mm-hmm. There was a story that broke about the Google Mini last week. You probably saw yep. that where it was actually recording everything that was being said in this by reporters by this yeah that's the viewers <laughs> home. <laughs> Oops! Yeah, exactly. So yeah. so advocacy is one thing. Um, yeah, oh, I
0: unplug mine. Did you really? I always unplug mine, all of them.
1: You unplug them when when you're don't when want I, to I use ask, them.
0: Yeah, I unplug them. Interesting. I cover my computer screen. I cover. I have, I block them. Yeah. Everything.
1: Yeah. You have to be wary. I just
0: block. Them. I just don't even know. That's my plan. Like, and, and then I'll take it off when I want to use it, and then I put it back on. Mm-hmm. It's just a small little moment of victory for myself, I guess. But I tell
1: you something: if you have kids, <laughs> you know they yeah. l- they love to interact with Siri, yeah. or, or or Google. Yeah. They think she's a person,
0: yeah. Well, not Siri. Siri's not the smartest one in the, in the group. But yeah. but, uh, <laughs> she maybe the student. <laughs> she's
1: the, the problem job. child.
0: She's the problem child. So one is these back, recognition. So, that. yeah, so right. there's a whole set host of issues. Of these things. These things. Mm-hmm.
1: And then, of course, I continue to worry about the normalization of extremism. Mm-hmm. And that shows up in the way that, you know, elements of the right, as we've been talking about, are trying to not only insert themselves. They are doing so. Look what's happened in the Austrian elections this mm-hmm. past weekend. Mm-hmm. Look what's happened in the European elections. And again, what's happening right here, I worry about in 2020 and in 2022, you're going to start to see slates of candidates right. who come from this kind of worldview mm-hmm. who will be very problematic, I think, to the public good. And then, you know, I, I would be I would be remiss if I didn't point out there are issues on the left as well, sort of rethinking free speech and clamping down on the way that ideas are allowed to circulate, particularly on the campus, yeah, which is also crazy. It is. Like I might not agree with everything that Ben Shapiro has to say, but he has the right to say it. Right. And we need to, again, protect the privileges that we have if we want to keep
0: them. Yeah, that is an unusual thing happening on these campuses. It's, it's a
1: real problem. It's more prevalent than you probably realize. Mm-hmm. Where, again, the, in the world of microaggressions, in a mm-hmm. world of like it starts to look a little bit like thought police. Mm-hmm. On the education front, um, Look, I think the anti-bias, anti-bullying work that we do is critical. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out how to digitize it, right. how to Khan Academy it. Right. How do you bring it to far more people than uh, we can do with face-to-face training? Are you getting
0: right. help from Melania Trump on this?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I will leave that alone.
0: <laughs> Just saying. That's her thing, right?
1: Yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah. Um, uh, and then thirdly, I think on the law enforcement front, yeah, how do we use AR and VR right. to enhance training? You know, we've been asked by several metropolitan police departments, big cities – to add to the work we do around training them on extremism and hate to do intrinsic bias. Right. Which is encouraging because we know there are real issues there. So imagine if you could use, you know, virtual reality to put a police officer in the shoes of a young black male. Mm-hmm. What it feels like to be pulled over for quote unquote driving while black. Mm-hmm. What it feels like to be, you know, on the, what it feels like to be a young sort of Mexican national on the other side of an ICE kind mm-hmm. of raid, right. And I think technology us to do really interesting things that would enhance our ability to help law enforcement. So
0: empathy, empathy via technology. And,
1: and understand the communities they're trying to serve.
0: Do you do anything around the taping of police officers? There's some interesting stuff going on around language. They're taping language and then showing how they talk to different people. No, in different I haven't ways. seen that. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it's Oakland. Um, so they're taping versus just the, the, the body cams. And so the, you can tell, the computers can tell what race they're talking to.
2: Is that right?
0: By the words they choose, it's you know, it's very clear the words they use for African Americans versus white people, and That's it's, it's absolutely different. It's really, it's it's there's it's data. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about. We just have a few more minutes. Is the idea of what data is, and you have all this data, people don't care about actual facts. Uh, you know, pr- pressed by again uh, this administration, this idea of uh, fudging what facts are what. Just today, there was fact lies said, and then everyone's now talking about not the lie, but the fact, whether it's true. You know what I mean? Like, you start to do that. So how do you do that when you have all this data? What happens to date? Because one of the strengths, presumably, of ADL is data. This many assaults, this many this. Yeah. I had a relative who there was some fact, and I was like, this is an actual piece of data. Well, so you say. And I was like, but it is. It's you know what I mean? It was yeah. just like – it was. it's a fascinating thing. So. You're a company, not a company, an organization that traffics in data that's critically important and presumably new data initiatives would help you as you begin to really see patterns and things and where things are happening. How do you combat that when data isn't data anymore?
1: Yeah, it's very challenging to be in a post-fact society where Mm -hmm. Stephen Colbert's version of truthiness seems Mm -hmm. to prevail Mm -hmm. on both sides, by the way. ADL has always been incredibly fact you know, fact-driven organizations. You said data-driven, fact-based. Right. And we are in an environment where people want their own facts. I mean, I think one of the things we need to do is to let's just acknowledge that data is just that. It's numbers. And, you know, bits are ones and zeros. And they're very hard to make any sense of until you contextualize them and embellish them with more information. So we need stories to support and supplement the data. Right? Mm-hmm. We need images to mm-hmm. enhance kind of the ones and the zeros. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to have to find ways to through visualization and through kind of the infographic and other techniques like that mm-hmm. to, and videos, et cetera, to make things really come alive. Right. So now we're back to like the VR piece we talked right. about just a minute I ago. I think VR
0: could be very effective.
1: Incredibly powerful. So it's one thing for me to say to you, OK, last year we saw 990 or this past year we saw 997 anti-Semitic incidences in the first half of the year. It's a whole nother thing if I could put you literally in the body of a 14-year-old when she is being harassed, when people – kids are throwing pennies at her at school or she walks back to her locker to find a swastika on it. And you're literally in that girl's seeing the experience as if you were that girl mm-hmm. will make this come alive in a way that was never possible. Mm-hmm. And you know, we have to acknowledge that these issues are real. And if we can find new ways to leverage the technology – to make – to transform those experiences and give you the actual, you know, a degree of insight that just a piece of paper can't, maybe that's how we change
0: this. Yeah, yeah. So last question. What would you like Silicon Valley to invent for you then?
1: What would like Silicon Valley to invent for me then?
0: For it to help your work?
1: Um, I think there are probably a few things. I mean I think it's so interesting.
0: you're going to have to soon be in defending cyborgs. Have you seen Blade Runner 2049?
1: We haven't seen it yet. I think we're yeah. going to see it this weekend. It's real long. That's what I heard. I heard it's three hours. Yeah, I just hours. interviewed
0: Jared Leto, who was in the movie. Really good. Yeah, he plays a trillionaire. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> they say a trillion is the new billion. Apparently, like that. he's really quite good. It was interesting because at one point he was talking about uh, this. I was asking him about robot rights, obviously, because eventually when these cyborgs start yeah. to really look human, they're they are human or are they human or the new life form? And he's the creator of a lot of these cyborgs, and so this cyborg comes out of like a. Baggy almost essentially and drops down in a bunch of goo and stuff. And he's been trying to get them to procreate actually. That's what he's been working on. The cyborgs. The cyborgs because there is one that it worked for. And so he's trying to replicate this to see if he can make more and more cyborgs more quickly. And so he – it didn't – this particular cyborg it didn't work with and so he kills her like just after this cyborg has been birthed essentially – just with with a, with a knife just kills her. And I said, that was a super disturbing scene that you just discarded this creation that you made. And he said, I was like breaking my iPhone. That's how I thought about it when I was – as an actor, I, he was trying to – and he's like, yeah, you break an – you throw an iPhone against the wall because it didn't work. And I was like, what? like but then he, you know it was really it was a great way to hmm. think about how he was thinking about his character but eventually that's the kind of thing we'll be perp- thinking about
1: probably i mean these questions of consciousness really get raised right. and you start right. to try to think about
0: yeah you uh, will, you will be def- the adl will be uh, defending robots someday <laughs> or someday just get ready for it <laughs> it's but
1: interesting it's, it's brave new world yeah right?
0: so what would you like them to do or make what is the thing that you would if you had an ask for these companies google facebook twitter what would you want if they could what would you want Besides a ton of money,
1: well, I think certainly. So, I guess I have a couple of quick thoughts. I mean, one of which would be create. You should be able to sort of. It would be interesting, wouldn't it, if you could sign up? I don't want to call it a premium version. But let's say a clean version of a Facebook or Twitter. Like, look, we we turn Showtime off of our cable package because it's. I got a little kids and it's gross. Mm-hmm. You know the movies and it's it's really bad stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know our our kids can watch the Hallmark Channel. Mm-hmm. And they can see clean stuff. Now, by the way, it might not be a view into everything that society has to offer. It might not be the highest form of mm-hmm. art. But you know what? For my kids, it's okay. So it would be interesting if you could create clean versions of these kind of social platforms mm-hmm. that were bereft. i tell you something else. From a design perspective, it's very interesting. Did you see that Facebook acquired TBH? Yes, I did. The other day? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever used TBH? No. So it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating app that's very popular with middle schoolers it and is. high schoolers. And it basically... the. The parameters of it are you can pull on other kids but only positive things, Mm -hmm. only positive things. So it minimizes the kind of bullying dynamic that could be so prevalent on these apps. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you start to realize if you embed in the design of your products, in the architecture of these platforms, a a bias toward good. Yep. So if I could ask for anything from Google and Facebook and Twitter, I would ask for that, Mm -hmm. a bias toward good. Now, let's acknowledge it wouldn't be perfect. Right. There would be biases. We'd have to work them out. But if you started with the premise, right. like I want to protect my IP, I want to protect the public interest, I want to create a bias toward good, I think that would that would lift up. All of us. That's called I.
0: Instagram. But yeah. <laughs> okay. People are, you know, it's right. interesting because some of the services they are. Snapchat is a lot more pleasant place to be.
1: Yeah. So again, yeah, I think they it's- They
0: design it. They it, design it that it, way.
1: It's interesting now that you mentioned that. So if mm-hmm. you think about Snapchat for a moment, it's post Twitter, right. if you will. And it's designed with an eye toward a younger audience. Trying to create interactions that are more
0: positive, and or not negative, really. I don't know if it's necessarily positive because some of it's silly. Yeah, that's the
1: point about bias toward good. It's yeah. not negative, right? It's not negative, right. and it kind of it reduces the ability of someone to go in and hack it, right. You know, for the wrong reasons.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Absolutely, hundred percent. That's a great ask. That's actually a great ask. I think they spend a lot of time designing for addiction. But that's a difference, right? We had a great uh, – with Tristan.
1: Um, Tristan Harris? Harris. Yeah,
0: we had him at Code last He's year. He's so interesting. He is. He used to design for Tristan Google. Tristan
1: Harris. That's right. Yeah. And he talks about the addiction and how the these – The
0: slot machine for attention. hmm
1: And how right. the, the, the feel you get, mm-hmm. not just the kind of endorphins, but the feel you get from your finger when you touch your phone mm-hmm. and you feel that yeah. or the sound it that chimes. Yeah. So think about if we could do a bias toward good that would, again, mitigate the harmful stuff.
0: So addiction for good hmm Fantastic. Jonathan, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. Here with Thanks Jonathan Greenblatt, me. the head of the ADL. Can you tell people if they want to donate or where they want to give?
1: Go to ADL.org.
0: And anything they want to do to help or –
1: Anything. Look, there's lots of ways we can use help. So go to ADL.org and the, learn and, more. And, and your office
0: will be opening in two months in Silicon Valley.
1: Yep. Yep, we'll be opening in a few months in Silicon where Valley.
0: Where are you locating?
1: We're- working out the details now.
0: Okay, cool. Well, that'll be great. I'll be there at your opening. Thank you. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with people like YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, Instagram CEO Kevin Systrom, and political journalist Maggie Haberman and David Farenthold. You can find all those episodes and more wherever you found this one or on our website, recode.net slash podcasts. Now that you're done with this, check out one of our other shows on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear a no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Two Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events including the Code Conference. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.